Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Health Connect South Radio. Brought to you by Sherwick Media, your health and wellness content specialist. Health Connect South is to serve the health community as a sustainable platform for regional health collaborations. Through our collective work, we seek to broadly define and advance the Southeast role in the future of health. Serving as a gateway between health industry silos, we seek to provide unique and meaningful partnership opportunities in health. We are pleased to share this information and these experts with you as part of our mission. Want to be part of the discussion? Join in, tweet questions and comments at HealthCon Radio. Hello, thank you for checking out the Health Connect South Radio Show. I'm C.W. Hall, your host, and this week on the show, we focused on cancer. Oncologist Dr. Brian Randolph from Cancer Treatment Centers of America stopped by the studio. We talked about how a variety of technologies and even big data are coming into play to change the way that we approach treating this disease that affects so many people in our population. Researchers and physicians have begun to identify the fact that there are genetic mutations that are contained within cancer cells that allow them to get very targeted with regards to medications to treat that particular cancer, and in some cases, be able to actually use medications that were aimed at a different type of cancer that may have some similarities genetically to a different type of cancer in a different part of the body. Coming up, Dr. Randolph is going to talk about the concept of genomics and how it is shaping cancer care. Check it out. This is an exciting time in oncology now. We're really learning more and more about the science of what drives cancer growth. I think the first thing to understand is just the basics of cancer. What is it? You know, I get asked that question all the time. Cancer is essentially abnormal cell growth. Today, the science of cancer is really trying to figure out what are the triggers? What are those light switches that we can turn off and on that essentially lead to that cancer growth or that abnormal cell growth? Genomics is really about finding those light switches. It's trying to figure out how do we turn off that abnormal growth of those cells and keep them from spreading to other places. The fundamental approach is actually taking a tumor, extracting the DNA, which is where the genes that control cell growth live, And so you extract that DNA and you sequence it to try to figure out exactly what are the mutations or abnormalities about that DNA. What we're finding is that 50 to 70 percent of patients will have some type of mutation in their DNA that we think is the driver of the cancer. As compared to about 15 percent of people will have predisposition to cancer, what we call inherited cancer syndromes. And so those are the people who have, for example, BRCA1, 2 mutations. So those are things you're born with, whereas we believe genomics is about things that are acquired over time. Stick around. I got the full interview with Dr. Brian Randolph of Cancer Treatment Centers of America coming up next. Good morning, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on the Health Connect South Radio Show, episode 39. We were talking before we went on the air, marveling that it's approaching the end of October already. Wow, time flies, right? (laughs) That's Diana Keough, our co-host here on the show, Sherwick Media Group. If you're not familiar with Sherwick, Diana, you want to give a quick introduction to what you all do? We are a content production company specializing in health and wellness content for not only other media companies, but everyone within the healthcare ecosystem. That is what we do, and that's what keeps us out of trouble most days. Today, we've got Dr. Brian Randolph from Cancer Treatment Centers of America. He's a medical oncologist and hematologist and is also the chief of medical oncology for the Cancer Treatment Centers of America here.
here in Noonan, just outside of Atlanta. So thanks for taking some time to come up into town and, and join us. Uh, thank you for having me. Good morning. We were talking as we were connecting before the show a little bit about some of the various things that are going on in oncology, particularly in the area of genomics and how big data is affecting what we do. And introduce folks to, if they're not familiar with genomics and how that is coming to play in, in fighting cancer, introduce them to the concept. This is an exciting time in oncology now. We're really learning more and more about the science of what drives cancer growth. I think the first thing to understand is just the basics of cancer. What is it? You know, I get asked that question all the time. Cancer is essentially abnormal cell growth. Today, the science of cancer is really trying to figure out what are the triggers? What are those light switches that we can turn off and on that essentially lead to that cancer growth or that abnormal cell growth? Genomics is really about finding those light switches. It's trying to figure out how do we turn off that abnormal growth of those cells and keep them from spreading to other places. How do we get at that now? Is it a blood test that we can do? I, I know when one of the companies that we had had in the studios not too long ago was able to do a swab of the cheek, for example, and get some genetic data that tells how we react to medications. Is that similar to what we're talking about here? There's a couple of approaches. The fundamental approach is actually taking a tumor, extracting the DNA, which is where the genes that control cell growth live. And so you extract that DNA and you sequence it to try to figure out exactly what are the mutations or abnormalities about that DNA. What we're finding is that 50 to 70 percent of patients will have some type of mutation in their DNA that we think is the driver of the cancer. As compared to about 15 percent of people will have predisposition to cancer, what we call inherited cancer syndromes. And so those are the people who have, for example, BRCA1, 2 mutations. So those are things you're born with, whereas we believe genomics is about things that are acquired over time. When that is determined after the DNA test is taken and that the mutation is found and whether it's genetic or mutation? I mean, does treatment differ at that point or how does what happens then? It can. So there have been a number of clinical trials now uh, over the past few years that have shown that in some cases patients will respond better than chemotherapy if you use a drug that's targeting the actual mutation of their tumor. Uh, the, the complicating factor is that we're finding many tumors have multiple um, mutations. And so which one is a driver, which one is a passenger, those are the kind of things we're still trying to sort out. And how extensive is this offered? I mean, I have a, a, a friend that just died of lymphoma of the brain, so, and none of this was offered to where he was being treated. So talk to me about how, how extensive this is being offered. Sure. So there are different um, depths, if you will, um, of, of sequencing that you can do. Um, the, the most basic level is if we have a known mutation in a cancer. So, for example, we know that uh, certain uh, types of breast cancer will overexpress something called HER2-NU, which is a, a protein uh, that lives on the surface of the cell. So um, pretty much every breast cancer patient is going to be tested for that. But what we don't know is that they may have other types of things, KRAS mutations, BRAF mutations, um, epidermal growth factor mutations. And so that requires uh, a, a different level of technology. So what that requires is for you to actually be able to extract DNA and then sequence the whole genome. And so you're, you're actually uh, looking at hundreds of genes as opposed to one, two, or three. Um, you asked the question as far as, you know, how frequent is that offered? Right now, uh, that type of deep sequencing primarily occurs in patients with late-stage advanced disease, um, and that's typically happening in the setting where all standard of care has already been exhausted. And so when we're talking about genomics, I guess uh, what I, w I was mistaken in my concept of it in that 
I, I was kind of thinking about it sort of like the discussion that we had about how do we respond to various medications. We were just taking um, genetic uh, a, a sample and getting some genetic material from my cheek, for example, and that would identify certain genetic uh, mutations perhaps that might affect how I respond to a medication. But here in this case, we're talking about taking a sample of the tumor that's developed already and seeing what has changed in those cells. Correct, but it does uh, translate hopefully into therapy, and so that's what we would call actionable mutations. And so um, what we now know is that we can sometimes find a mutation and there's actually a drug <clears throat> sometimes already available on the market, sometimes not. It's sometimes in clinical trials still, but we're able to actually target that mutation with a particular drug. Now, would that be where we talk about precision medicine? Is that what where that fits in? That's exactly what that would be. Um, so there's kind of two terms that get used interchangeably, but really to us mean different things. There's personalized medicine and precision medicine. Um, when I think of personalized medicine, I think more along the lines of integrative care and how can I make sure that I'm taking care of that patient's side effects and symptoms related to treatment and disease. When I talk about precision medicine, it's can I get down to the level of what is the particular problem with their tumor that I can then use a drug to fight it with. And so the analogy would really be to look at how we treat infections today. So if a person comes in with a blood infection today, uh, they're, they are going to actually have that, they're going to have a culture where you're going to take that bacteria, you're going to grow it out on a peach tree dish, and then you're going to test with different types of antibiotics. And hopefully that allows you to, to use an antibiotic that is specific to that particular bug. In cancer, we're looking at now trying to move to that same level, which is where you would take the DNA of the tumor, you would extract it, you would find the mutations, and then you would look for a drug that, that specifically targets the abnormality that you're seeing. So um, so it does translate into therapy options over time. You know, this seems like common sense. Um, how come it took us so long to get here? Well, it's a complicated thing. Um, number one, um, it's going to require us to uh, think a little bit outside of our traditional mold of the clinical trial. Um, it's creating a lot of challenges today, actually, in the, uh, in the academic world, because um, now instead of doing large randomized controlled trials, we're having to do more studies that are what we call N of 1, which is basically saying that you have one patient, one abnormality, and I'm going to treat that abnormality and then hopefully see what the outcome is over time. Interesting. Now, I guess, I guess that's kind of a... It's a good thing and a bad thing in the sense that, you know, historically we just get a group of people together that have similar age ranges, some similar demographics, whatever the case may be, and we, we study them as a big group. But based on what we're learning now with the genomics piece is that I may respond to a medication differently than somebody else, so therefore it kind of confounds the results a little bit, I guess. Uh, that's that's very true. I'm, I, I think one of the, the um, risks or one of the... Uh, problems of the current uh, clinical trial designs is that, uh, one, it excludes certain patient populations. Um, and then the, the other issue we see is that it doesn't always tell us all the answers of why did uh, this person respond different from the other. And so that's really the heart of uh, what we're doing with genomic medicine and precision medicine is that you're trying to look at the, the drivers of the cancer and see if targeting that driver is going to result in a good outcome over time. So within Cancer Treatment Centers of America, how, how are we integrating these pieces into what we're doing? Sure. At Cancer Treatment Centers of, Centers of America, we have a number of things we're doing. 
Um, first of all, uh, we practice evidence-based medicine where if we know there's a mutation or there's an abnormality to test, we're going to test that. Um, and hopefully that will lead to a, a better outcome for the patient because we've actually delivered care that is specific to uh, the things that we know already. Um, now, the next level is the genomic testing, and so that's not currently being uh, utilized uh, widely in the community, and that's for a number of reasons. Um, one of the risks of genomic testing is you could find an abnormality and then not, and the drug's available, but then you can't get access to the drug. And so uh, we actually have um, drug acquisition specialists in place that help us uh, to secure a drug for a patient when we find that there's an abnormality we want to target. That's not available to everyone in the community, and so that's uh, you know one of the unique things that we believe strongly in making sure that we're, we're delivering the best possible care to every patient. So when you talk about a medicine that's not yet available, are you talking about something that may be still in study phase is, that's not been released out for general use or? Most of the time it's going to be an FDA approved drug but not for the indication of their particular type of tumor. Ah. So our current clinical trial design is based on tumor type. So you may be a 58 year old female with breast cancer that's estrogen receptor positive. So you're going to go into a specific type of clinical trial for a drug targeting estrogen receptor. So tamoxifen for example in its development. Um, what we're looking at is the patient comes in and they've already had tamoxifen and tamoxifen has failed and so um, now I want to know is there something else going on? Has the tumor changed in some way that's causing that to happen? So I would do a biopsy. I would send the uh, tumor specimen off to have genomic testing so I'd extract DNA and then I would look at the mutations and and then let's say I, I come up with a BRAF mutation. Um, well, we already know that BRAF is a gene that's often mutated in melanoma, and there are drugs that now target that in melanoma. However, those drugs are not necessarily approved for breast cancer. I see. So what I would do is I would seek out the opportunity to get that drug for that breast cancer patient, even though it's a drug approved for melanoma. I see. A drug acquisition specialist had a different meaning when we were in high school and college. <laughs> I've never actually heard that term before. But And so when you seek out that drug, I mean, what kind of vetting do you have to go through um, to basically use it off-label? So um, uh, there's a number of things that have to happen. Um, the first step is you obviously have to look for approval from the insurance company. Right. Um, and so obviously you want to minimize the uh, cost burden on the patient. So um, we're talking drugs that can be several thousand dollars per month. And so without the help of their insurance company, it, it can be impossible sometimes for the patients to afford it. Um, so if that fails, then you go through an appeal process. And, and that's the, the process of essentially compiling whatever data exists. Um, so a lot of the companies today, uh, for example, Foundation Medicine, um, have the ability to provide you with some of the background to the gene abnormality you're looking at. And then as the oncologist, I'll have to go and pull papers and do some research to actually uh, find literature to support why I think the drug is safe and why I think the drug may have an effect for this patient. And so that's a very time-consuming process. And so drug acquisition specialists are often pharmacists or advanced practitioners who already have a clinical knowledge um, about diseases and, uh, and the drugs, and then they will actually help to find that literature for me so they can bring that to me to review as opposed to having to go out and do literature searches myself. Yeah, I was thinking that'd be a cumbersome process for a clinician. Yeah, and, and also for the patient as mm -hmm. well. I mean, you're doing most of the research, but you know, I'm thinking as you know, hearing that cancer diagnosis, I hear cancer and it's blah, blah, blah after all this. So how would you actually then 
explain this to a patient as though I'm a third grader? I mean, how do you actually do that? So, so you know, that is one of the greatest challenges today as an oncologist. We're moving into this more exact science, which means the terminology becomes even more scientific. And so, uh, trying to explain these things to a patient, it's, it's easy now to tell someone that, you know, this is breast cancer, this is what it means. It's a tumor that originated in your breast and it's maybe spread to other places. But it's harder to tell someone that you have this mutation, you didn't inherit it, um, however, it was acquired somehow in your lifetime through some exposure, and we think that that's what's causing the cancer growth. So I try to keep it very basic and simple to the point of, you know, explaining that what we're looking for, like I said earlier, is that light switch. What turned on the growth of your tumor or what changed about your tumor that's causing it to grow out of control now and it's not responding to the existing therapy? And so... I start with that premise, and then we'll talk about maybe the specific mutation that I'm finding and what does that mean. Um, oftentimes, patients don't necessarily want to hear all of the numbers um, because ultimately what they want to know is, am I going to live longer? Right. Am I going to have <laughs> less toxicity? Rate, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah, and so, I mean, is there ever a case, I mean, it's interesting that all this is being done on a tumor as opposed to me being able to do it or, you know, us being able to go into the doctor's office and having this done in terms of prevention or looking for a cure before it actually happens. Mm -hmm. So, well, so that's an interesting point because that's the next generation or the next phase of this. So, um, so this is started by looking at tumor samples, but what now is starting to evolve are tests on the blood and, and other sites. And so, um, and then there's also testing where certain companies will look at uh, a blood sample as compared to the tumor to look for things that may, if they're, for example, present in both the blood and the tumor, then that might be actually an inherited abnormality versus if they're only in the blood and or only in the tumor, then that tells you different things. Um, but that's the direction we're trying to move, uh, less invasive testing. So mm -hmm. can I just do a simple blood test or a cheek swab to figure this out? Um, and, and then once we kind of validate that process, then the next step would be, can I look for these things early on? Um, it's very complicated because, you know, the there's a lot of literature coming out now where we're finding things that we don't fully understand yet. And so I think that's one of the risks is that you may find 20 mutations. Um, and I've actually had patients where um, they'll have a trisomy um, abnormality that you see in Down syndrome, for example. Um, and this happens to be a leukemia patient that I'm seeing. And so their question naturally to, to me was, does that mean my children are going to likely have Down syndrome? Um, and I can't really explain that yet. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the risks of, of this testing is that we find out information that we don't necessarily know how to explain also. Have you done any of this genetic testing on yourself yet? I have not. Uh, that, now that's interesting. Why not? <laughs> well, uh, currently the, the most validated tests are on actual tumor specimens. So, so I hope I don't have a tumor <laughs> anywhere that needs to be tested. Um, now, if I did have a tumor, then I would want that uh, because I think it is, it's the future. It's one of the new pillars of oncology care. Um, and so I'd, I would do that if, if I did have a tumor. And if they come up with a test that actually helps screen you, um, for cancer in a genomic way, then I, I would want that. Because most of the tests that are out there actually claim that they are doing that. 
as far as they can actually tell you what you're going to be getting. And I mean, kind of address that, especially for the listeners that are are kind of considering the 23andMe, not to sure. mention names or anything. Yeah, sure. I, I think that that is a very challenging uh, situation because there are certain mutations that we already know the history of. And um, for example, BRCA1, BRCA2, and, and some of the um, abnormalities we see in colorectal cancers. Um, the problem is that just because you have the mutation doesn't mean you're going to get a cancer. Um, you know, I, I, had, I went to a very interesting lecture about BRCA, and it's interesting that, you know, because you have BRCA mutation doesn't mean you're going to get breast cancer or ovarian cancer. It just means your risk is a little bit higher. You still have to have a second hit. There still has to be another abnormality to occur for you to develop cancer. But I think the awareness of that helps for screening because it still doesn't alleviate the need to do screening. What it does tell us is, for example, if I'm a woman that has a family history of breast cancer and, and someone in that family has a BRCA mutation, well, then Dosh Garnet, I'm, you know, I'm going to get my mammograms much earlier than 50 years old. So, um, you know, so I think that what it, it, it's doing right now is it's kind of opening up people to think about their family history, uh, to inquire about their family history, and to go out and get screened um, more aggressively than they would have otherwise. We've been speaking with Chief of Medical Oncology and a medical oncologist and hematologist himself, Brian uh, uh, Randolph of the Cancer Treatment Centers of America, sharing some information on how genomic testing is affecting how we approach uh, treating cancer. And, and now we have some technologies that are, in some cases, allowing us to get very specific with the medications that we're using uh, to treat a particular drug or even maybe uh, find out why a patient may not be responding to what we would think uh, would be a medication that for most of the population that has this particular problem um, and maybe pursue something, as we talked about earlier, that maybe not yet approved for this, but we know based on some of the studies that it would essentially work. And, you know, I'm curious because I know that Cancer Treatment Centers of America has n several hospitals around the country. And so I would imagine that through that, you, you know, probably thousands and thousands of patients that you're seeing on an annual basis that you're acquiring a pretty good base of data. How does that come into play? Because we talked a little bit about, you know, the the delay that healthcare has seen mm -hmm. as its use as it relates to using big big data how how are you able to integrate that because i would imagine having multiple facilities like that you're able to leverage all of that information that you're getting across these populations sure that's um so that's one of the challenges um of precision medicine so precision medicine is focused on the individual big data is focused on the population and um, the two really work synergistically. Um, you, you really, as you see an outcome, or, or it, whether it's good or bad, you really want to log that somewhere so that you can, over time, look for trends and patterns. And that's what big data is really about. Um, at Cancer Treatment Centers of America, we actually have partnerships where um, we have um, an organization that's creating that database for us and then we, you still have to partner with academic institutions and um, people who know how to do the mathematical modeling to ultimately tell you kind of what are those trends uh, that are occurring. Um, that is, uh, you know, I think the biggest challenge in the oncology community is the collaboration part, though. Um, we're all doing these databases in silos. And That's so, right. you know, everywhere you go, uh, not to <laughs> name a few places, I mean, you know, Sloan Kettering, right. MD Anderson, Cancer Treatment Centers of America, we all have our own database. We want to be the first with the big discovery. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And and I think that's one of the um, grassroots efforts that we need to see uh, from the community is we need a push to, um, to all collaborate 
collaborate and, and bring that data together. Um, Cancer Treatment Centers of America has enrolled in, uh, we're one of, I believe, only six uh, practices that's enrolling in something called CancerLink. Um, CancerLink is an initiative by the American Society of Clinical Oncology uh, where the goal is really to try to pull together information from all practices around the country and ultimately around the world in order to collect this not only genomic data but just even demographic data uh, so that we can ultimately identify these bigger trends that are occurring. You know, do KRAS mutations only occur in a certain population that lives in Maine, for example? I mean, those are the kind of things we want to know because then we can act upon those things. But as long as we're kind of studying this population over to the left and this population over to the right, it's kind of hard to make those associations because you have these silos that are occurring. Are there any discoveries that have been made because of big data in cancer? Sure. A uh, good example is the progress we've made in lung cancer, the fact that we now know that, that a percentage of lung cancers called adenocarcinomas will have what's called an EGFR, or epidermal growth factor receptor mutation. That was found through big data. And the result of that is that we now have targeted drugs against that that are having efficacy that's better than, in some cases, chemotherapy. The other part of that is the bedside back-to-the-bench component. At some point, some of these patients no longer respond to that therapy. So something's happened. Well, that means that you have to take another snapshot and look for patterns of resistance. That's the part where we're still, I think, growing. And even at the academic level, that's where we're still growing is how do we get that information from the, the bedside back to the bench? So big data, these databases, those are ways to potentially do that. If that patient gets resequenced, that ought to go into the database so that over time you'll see that maybe a thousand patients have this same pattern occur. Mm -hmm. And that's what you get in being a member of CancerLink is the information from your practice along with these other organizations that are participating, it all flows into that, creating a big aggregate group of information. That's correct. So the, the ideal scenario is that I'm a registered provider with CancerLink, and I have a patient in front of me who maybe she's um, 85 years old, was just diagnosed with um, pancreatic cancer, um, has diabetes and some kidney insufficiency. Um, what am I going to do? And so that question comes up every day. I can't go to a clinical trial and find that patient um, because that patient's more than likely been excluded uh, from the clinical trial. But I can look at my colleague out in Seattle, maybe, who saw a patient very similar to that um, and take from draw from that experience to come up with a treatment regimen that's uh, specific to that patient's scenario. So that's the idea of, of CancerLink. Um, it also allows us to look at quality initiatives. So over time, if you're feeding this different data into one pool, uh, then I can actually compare practices to see what outcomes look like from one practice to the next. How does it work to query such a database? Are you, is, it, is it sort of like a Google in a way that you're able to ask a phrase of, of questions and it yeah. pulls data points Put, related to know, that? Kind of basically putting in the... 57-year-old woman, blah, blah, right. blah. It is. Um, so uh, there, there are variations on the theme, but most of them boil down to having to have some pretty <laughs> extensive training um, to learn how to work these queries. And so um, you, the, the ones that I've played around with a little bit um, that, that are out there so far is you basically will choose various options from drop-down menus. And then, um, and then they'll have some areas where you may be able to free text in certain information. But um, but the bottom line is that you just kind of you build this query yourself, particular to the pa specific to the patient you're seeing, and then you hit submit, 
and then ultimately it'll come back with case reports of uh, the situation that you're you're proposing. And so that's where it would give you, like Diana was saying, 57-year-old female with XYZ type of cancer. These were the regimens that she was taking. Was that what you get? That's correct. And you can see then their progress or lack thereof against that. That's correct. So ultimately you see, you know, what was their, what were their demographics? Um, what were the specifics of their cancer? Um, what treatment did they receive? And then what was the outcome of that treatment? Why would somebody, why would an institution not be part of CancerLink? In your opinion, in your humble opinion. <laughs> That's a uh, complicated question. I, I think that some of it is... Um, well, some of it relates relates back to kind of proprietary information and then also kind of the fear of making sure that this information is de-identified. Um, you know, I think as oncologists, we take ownership of our patients, and so we're very protective of, of their information. And that's a part of uh, healthcare in general with HIPAA and so forth. Um, so I think one of the fears that some people have is that, you know, this data is going to get uh, exposed and that, um, you know, that, well, there's two fears. One is that the data uh, gets de-identified somehow um, and then and then you're able to pull out from that um, a specific individual, which is what you really don't want to do. Um, but the other fear is that um, by de-identifying data that you're going to miss something. So. I've now submitted this information on my patient, and now they found five years later that this particular mutation she had um, was an inherited abnormality, but I didn't inform that patient that they had a potential risk. Um, I think that's a fear that some people have. I don't think it's a realistic fear because uh, the reality is in five years, if we found this in a, a, a genetic abnormality, hopefully you're going to know that as the oncologist and you will be able to communicate that on to your patients. Now, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And um, as an oncologist that is uh, dealing in this, a lot of breast cancer survivors are actually, the whole pink movement is incredibly irritating. Um, as you and an oncologist, how, how do you, how do you respond to that or how do you address that? Um, I mean, is it helped? Is it, I mean, is this a movement that actually you support? So patients make it happen. Um, people make it happen. And, and so I think that you have to have these grassroots efforts for it to really, uh, to see success. We've made huge strides in breast cancer. Now, some of the fundamentals are still there. You have to get screened. You have to see a doctor when you see, feel a problem, um, or observe a problem. Um, but I think that grassroots effort, um, I mean, you take the Herceptin story, for example, with Dennis Slayman and how long it took, uh, the drug to be developed and how many times it got put off by the drug companies until uh, that grassroots effort came in and, and said, hey, this man is discovering some things that are very important and are going to advance cures for our cancer. We want to see some success and some outcomes. And so um, you really have to have that patient drive, um, ultimately, I think, to make things happen. Um, I think one of the things that's been successful with breast cancer is that um, it's primarily a disease of women. And so women have been very proactive about making sure that they have cures. They're demanding cures today. 
I actually saw that Mike's hard liquor is is got pink containers. <laughs> you know, I had, I'm like, uh, okay, that's a bit of a stretch. It's funny because uh, <laughs> to to compare that, you know, to the um, what was it, the Lou Gehrig's disease, the ALS, mm-hmm. the the you know, many people became weary of that uh, of that campaign. But the reality of it is they raised, I don't remember, at least I think it was eight, maybe even nine figures. Um, of money that, through that process. So, I mean, I guess it's one of those things where in a way it can be seem excessive, but I mean, just like here, it's generated a conversation that uh, might, might lead a woman to go get her screening where she wasn't thinking about it before. So, I mean, I guess in the end, those are very effective, um, particularly once it really takes off and the NFL gets involved and Mike's hard liquor and, and <laughs> others. <laughs> For you in your, in your day-to-day practice, because I know in addition to your leadership role with, uh, with, the, with the program, um, I mean, how, does, how do you try to integrate all of this? You know, we, we talked about big data and we, you've got access to CancerLink and all of that. How do you how do you fit that in, and does it sometimes feel like you're drinking out of a fire hydrant? Um, it it does uh, feel that way at times because it, it can be an information overload um, sometimes. But you know, I think the the key is is time. Um, it does take time uh, to do this, and um, you know that's one of the um, I guess that's one of the the risks we have. Why uh, Cancer Link is so important? It needs to be simple. Um, it needs to be easy to use and quick to access. Mm-hmm. If I'm you know, the majority, the reality is the majority of patients are still treated in the community. And so uh, community practices are very busy. And so an oncologist in a community practice may have to see 25, 30 patients in a day. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it does take a commitment. It does uh, take a, a desire, but you also have to have time. Um, and so and so the simpler we can make this, uh, the easier we can make it to to collect the data, meaning we have to have electronic health records that are connected that talk to each other, um, then the more likely this technology is to advance over time. Oncologist Dr. Brian Randolph of Cancer Treatment Centers of America is with us in the studio. We're talking about how uh, big data is beginning to exert an influence over how we practice medicine. And and that was one of the questions I was going to have is just in terms of the electronic health record side of things. They've evolved dramatic uh, Bit since I was in healthcare working in the hospital uh, years ago, they were just beginning. I mean, they were more or less an electronic way to enter somebody's vital signs and medications and things like that. But it, re- it it's really so much more than that now because through through the EHR, is that how you would access the something like a cancer link, or is it its own portal unto itself? Uh, so it's its own database, uh, so to speak. But um, the way it's being developed is that. Um, you're creating, they're creating interfaces with electronic health records. And so um, we've now evolved to the point where most vendors of electronic health records have common language that they use for programming. And so um, you can actually build interfaces now between different systems so that data elements carry over. I think the challenge is that um, as an oncologist, I'm trained to tell the patient's story. And so when I when I put information into the electronic health record, I'm trying to recapture that. I'm trying to capture that patient's story as a history. Um, unfortunately, when you put things into a record as as what we call free text, so basically I I, I just tell the story. Um, that doesn't translate into discrete data elements that can be moved from one system to the next. Mm-hmm. So that's been a huge challenge for the. Um, 
for the IS world and, and the information services and technology world. That's where all the drop-down boxes, I guess, come from, where you try to choose the phrase that is describing what I'm looking at most yes. closely, because then it will become, I guess, a data point at that point. Yes, and, and that's kind of the, um, you know, if you look at, at physician notes today, um, it, it, it it's changing quite a bit. You know, it used to be that I would pick up a piece of paper and read just this is what the person wrote about this patient. Mm -hmm. Now it's becoming kind of bullet points. And, and a lot of that is because we're trying to capture those discrete elements over time so that we can figure out are there patterns and trends that are occurring. Um, so it has its kind of pluses and minuses. It makes for a, a choppy note, mm -hmm. but it allows us to aggregate data over time to figure out how we can best help someone. Plus, the person sitting in front of you doesn't necessarily fit into that drop-down menu. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that uh, is other a lot of things. I mean, are you choosing other a lot? <laughs> that That's correct. You do end up kind of selecting that free text other um, box uh, quite a bit to try to better explain what, what you're observing. And a lot of times, I'm sure that the part of the story that actually could have a pretty significant relevance is not actually one of the drop boxes as well. I mean, have you experienced that as well? Yes, I have. And and the other challenge is that um, in the payer environment, you need to link things specifically to certain diagnoses. And so I had a challenge the other day with a patient who saw their primary care doctor who had um, who had linked in a diagnosis of diabetes. She doesn't have diabetes, but he was screening her for diabetes. And so in order to do that, he had to uh, put that diagnosis code in. And so then it came out on her electronic health record, her portal, that she had diabetes. Um, so you see these kind of things happen um, that can be sometimes confusing and misleading uh, to the patient. So I think that's one of the risks we have of having to move to these more discrete data elements and, and linking things together in an EHR. I'm sure that could cause her some agita as it relates to insurance as well yes it, it was uh <laughs> it, it was very interesting. now well the, the good news is our insurance our insurance provider will see it in a different context because they'll see the order that was driven for the blood test a screener gotcha. associated with looking for diabetes but uh, when it came across the patient's portal she goes, well, my doctor didn't tell me I had diabetes. <laughs> and so I had to, you know, I'm, yes, I'm an oncologist, but I also am an internist. So, I, you know, I had to explain he did not, you know, he's not saying, and I could pull his note also and right. see that he was not telling her she had diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> and then she becomes a non-compliant patient. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's right. So how, how, how is the, the, the research side of things impacting your care? Within the Cancer Treatment Centers of America, are you all participating in, in trials yourself, or, or are you more integrating the results as they come out? Uh, we're doing some of both. Uh, so we have our, our database that we're creating with um, genomic information uh, that pools together you know, the demographics and so forth. Um, that is uh, really taking those patients who have exhausted standard of care, we've done genomic testing, and then we've offered them a medication that may or may not be FDA approved for their particular cancer. And so we want to capture that, and, and ultimately if they have a good outcome or a bad outcome, we want to capture that so that we know uh, going forward whether that's going to work. Um, on the other side, we have the traditional clinical trials. We also uh, offer phase three trials, phase two trials. Um, I think it's important to understand how those are designed. Um, 
you know, most drug development occurs over about a 12 year period. And so um, you'll you'll go from which that's one <laughs> that's of our frustrations. Time, yeah. yes. So you think about it, it takes me four or five years in a lab to even come up with the concept, then another 12 years to get it from, you know, testing it in a peach tree dish to actually using the drug in a human and being able to uh, to actually, you know, put it in my medicine cabinet. Um, so it's, it's a long time in that development, but we have some of those trials also because that's still the fundamental drug development process. Um, that's what the FDA still recognizes as the, um, as the way to approve a drug is that they want to see it go through safety, efficacy, and then comparative trials. Uh, so that's phase one, two, and three. Um, we also have uh, what we call basket and umbrella trials, though. And that's the new age of, um, of trials that are being used for genomics. Um, a basket trial is where I'm going to take patients who all have, is focused on the mutation. So I have patients who have KRAS, but I don't care whether it's breast, lung, colon, what type of cancer it is. Mm-hmm. I care about the mutation and what's the outcome with a given drug targeting that mutation. Umbrella trials are where I actually am looking at all patients with one tumor type and the different mutations within that tumor. And so, um, and so in that case, I might use several different drugs to target different mutations for one particular type of cancer. And so we have um, both types of trials uh, available at Cancer Treatment Centers of America. It's interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm going to guess on your age and I'm probably very off, but it, you've probably been practicing, what, about 20 years? Uh, that's about right, yeah. Um, <laughs> and just for the listeners who are or can't see Dr. Randolph, um, he's incredibly young, incredibly bright. Um, but the from just the minutes that we've been talking, by the time, you know, from when you started and we're in med school to what the way you're practicing medicine now, uh, the changes that have happened, when has, when has the most change happened in that 20-year period? In your experience, gosh, I would say um, relevant to clinical outcomes, really just in the last five years or so. Um, this is work has been going on for you know 30, 40 years, um, and even you look at the newer discoveries like um, the cellular therapies where they're using the HIV virus, for example, to treat cancers and all. Now that work's been going on for years, um, but. It's really just been in the last five years or so that we've seen these breakthroughs where um, where it's resulting in actionable outcomes. Um, so I think that kind of speaks to one of the challenges in healthcare today is that it takes so long for an idea to move um, from actually an idea to a reality. Um, and there's a number of factors there. Only one in 5,000 drugs ever makes it uh, from the bench to the bedside. And we already said, you know, 12 years is an average amount of time for that to occur. And then the other part of that is that I'm a big advocate of clinical trials, and only 3% of adult cancer patients participate in clinical trials. That's a big part of why I think we see such slow development, because you have to accrue people into these trials mm-hmm. be- to have enough numbers to know if you're making a difference. The fundamental asking or question that we ask in a clinical trial is the observation that I'm seeing because of the is the effect because of the drug I'm giving or the intervention or is it just chance and you've got to have enough people in that study to know that to know that they're statistically um, that, that this is not just occurring because of chance um, you know if you compare that to um, to children childhood cancers ALL 
over 80 percent, 80, 85 percent of uh, of children participate in clinical trials with cancer. And um, and you look at ALL that's gone from a disease that was pretty much uh, devastating to all families. And so you would have children um, that would almost universally die from this disease to now 80, 90 percent of them being cured. So three percent of adults. Why? Why so low? Is it lack of information, lack of accessibility? I think it's it's very multi. It's multifactorial. Um, again, one of those boils down to time. So it takes more time to explain a clinical trial to a person. Um, it also uh, takes more time to enroll a person into a trial. And and because of some of the regulatory requirements, um, you can't walk into the office and start a clinical trial today. It takes, you know, a couple of days to actually, you know, get registered and so forth. So when you're dealing with someone who's already very anxious because they've been told I have cancer, I want it, you know, I want it cured. I want it out of me. I want it done now. Um, it's kind of hard to say, okay, let's put on the brake for a minute because I have something here that may be more innovative and may have a better outcome for you. Can't guarantee that, but there's a possibility. So let's take a little time and think about this. Um, so that, that, that really takes, um, it takes a lot of on, ongoing discussion. So when you break that data down, um, it turns out that actually only about 20, 30 percent of uh, patients are even being informed that there may be a clinical trial available to them. So, so there's an education component. Yeah. And so in the 20 years that you have been practicing, especially with the advances we've made in the last five years, I mean, do you look back on when you first started on patients that you've lost that maybe could have made it based on the technology and what we know now? I do uh, sometimes have that feeling, um, you know, and and wish that it had been available sooner. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, for example, the, the availability of these uh, new drugs for lung cancer, you know, I've certainly lost a number of patients to uh, lung cancer. And, um, and, and, and then you have to naturally wonder, well, could they have had that EGFR mutation and received a drug that would have then saved their life? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you're, you're always asking that question. But, you know, the hope is that um, if we get more people to participate in these studies, then we'll see faster development of these drugs and things will come available so that the future um, people that are afflicted with these diseases don't have to suffer as much. I would assume that with the data that we have now and the way that we can aggregate it, it would seem that that would begin to help accelerate somewhat the pace at which we're able to it, get some of these it, out. It does. The other benefit, I think, to the the approach that we're taking now is that you can act on it now, even if you don't necessarily know the outcome. If I'm able to get a, a medication that targets something today for that patient, and then they have a benefit, boy, do I feel great about that. I mean, because you've saved a life there. I'm not necessarily waiting on someone to write up a full protocol and then send it through all the process there. Mm-hmm. I think the important thing is the patient just needs to be informed. You know, I think it's you have to make an educated decision as to whether to participate, whether to receive the drug. But that's no different than going to the doctor's office, in my opinion, and being offered three different pills for hypertension or high blood pressure. I mean, I need to know what are the potential side effects of each of those drugs. And that's what I spend, if I'm going to put someone on on a drug that technically is not approved for their indication, a lot of the time I spend is is still doing literature searches to make sure I know the safety profile of that drug. On one of our earlier shows, we had the folks from uh, the 
Georgia Corps, and one of the resources they have available is the georgiacancerinfo.org where patients and family members can go, and there's a resource page there basically that'll show them where and what type of clinical trials there are available across the state. So hopefully that would help people get involved with uh, various ones because you mentioned the fact that some of it may just be the fact that my doctor didn't necessarily tell me. I mean, you were busy trying to do things and not necessarily being able to keep up with all the studies that are going on today. I'm sure it's challenging to know that down the road that there's a a study going on. So uh, that kind of patient resource is, is useful. Yeah. And I also, I have to believe that you also run into the fact that if an intern at another institution in town actually does the diagnosis that there's a push or and I don't want to say there's an ulterior motive but there's some operations going on that wants to keep that patient within that institution um, so I was going to ask you like your the point of entry into the Cancer Treatment Centers of America when does that normally happen because I can't imagine that without naming big institution names that an Emory, um, would actually be happy about pushing patients to you? Um, I, you know, so most of the patients we see are coming for second opinions. And, uh, and, and, and one of my beliefs is uh, second opinion is important to have no matter where you are in the spectrum of the disease. Um, I think if you are just diagnosed, um, you want to know all of your options. So um, even though the person you're seeing may be giving you all the right answers, it never hurts to hear it from someone else and, and be sure that that's the approach you want to take. Um, so we have patients who enter into our system at new diagnosis. That's about half the patients now. Um, but we also have patients who enter after they've already gone through two or three lines of therapy. Um, and, and so it just varies from person to person. Uh, but I think the value of a second opinion is, is huge. Um, I just had the conversation with, um, a young man um, in in Tennessee who, um, you know, I was a I, I, I was the drum major of the Pride of the Southland Marching Band in, in <laughs> at University of Tennessee, so I'm a big Go Vols, big Tennessee fan um, there. But uh, he was just diagnosed with cancer, and um, you know, and so I had a, a sit down with him and just discussed it with him. I said, you know, make sure you get a second opinion. This is your life that's on the line. This mm-hmm. is, um, you know, it's very important that you make sure you know what all of your options are, and that's really what. It's about. Um, now, you did mention the challenge of, you know, people want to keep patients within their system. They also don't want to lose patients because of speed to care. Um, you know, I think that is a risk that you take. Um, but, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a, I went into oncology because I want what's best for that individual person, not because I want what's best for my company. Um, you know, the company, I believe in it because it supports the things I need for my patients. Uh, but ultimately, it boils down to I want to make sure that patient gets what's going to save their life. And speaking of saving lives, even with as much as we know, um, there's got to be some element of frustration on your part that you still lose patients. Certainly. Um, you know, that's that's one of the unfortunate parts of, of being an oncologist is that um, you know, we still have not uh, necessarily found the, the magic bullet. And, um, and so, you know, but I, I, you know, what I find comfort in is that um, as an oncologist, as a doctor, I can help people no matter what they're going through. So dying is a process. And, and helping someone through that process is just as important as helping them find a cure. So I think that's been a paradigm shift in oncology in general. 
Um, you know, whereas oncologists had, you know, the focus was on, you know, treating cancer all the time. Now we're having to look at how to palliate some patients that we know right. are not going to necessarily have the, the same outcome. Yeah, that is a whole real huge shift. Mm -hmm. And with the last few minutes, one of the things that I mentioned in our conversation the other day was uh, that part of our mission here with the the Health Connect South folks is to, talk, we talked about silos earlier, is to break those down and to try to bring together collaborations or partnerships that would make efforts like yours advance that much more quickly and more broadly. Uh, when the organization is, is looking across the landscape, are there types of partnerships or collaborations, resources that you would like to try to identify that might be able to have synergy for both organizations and then obviously make those outcomes come more quickly? Sure. I mean, you know, we've talked about um, kind of breaking the mold of, of those silos um, that we see today. Um, you know, it used to be a time where you could, um, I could work in a lab, I could see something in cells and then develop it all the way through um, to being an effective therapy. Um, and I could do that without stepping outside of my department. You just cannot do that today. And, and so, um, you know, I, what my ask would be to see more practices enroll in things like CancerLink, um, to see pharmaceutical companies uh, support the universities more by allowing the scientists in the university to continue to develop more drugs with them, um, and to partner with the mathematicians who create these models that help us to understand what's going on, so so-called bioinformatics. Um, you know, I think that's the challenge. If I'm a community oncologist, um, then, you know, access to someone who can do this modeling and help me figure out what those patterns and trends are, um, you just don't, you don't have it. Um, that's one of the challenges even with Cancer Treatment Centers of America is that we're not an academic institution, so we don't have basic scientists and we don't have uh, statisticians and mathematicians that know how to put all this stuff together. So we have to connect with those people um, to, to help solve the puzzle. Now, are those living mostly in an academic institution, or are there they are for-profit entities out there as well, the, or there's, private entities? There's some of both. So, um, so the uh, one of the concerns in, in the industry today is that um, I can make a business out of just taking building a database basically to house right. data. Um, but when I the question I ask as a provider is okay, that's nice. I can I know how to I'm I'm an engineer by trade. I can build a database, um, but I don't necessarily know how to set up the neural networks and all these fancy mathematical models, Bayesian you know models and so forth to solve the puzzle. So. You know, what we need is for those collaborations to occur um, through industry and through academics. Um, you know, the reality is if I'm a company that builds a database, I'm likely Oracle, for example. Uh, Oracle is a profitable organization. Well, let's take some of those profits and funnel those back into the universities with students who are trying to build these mathematical models to help us solve the problem. It's just going to take a lot more thinking outside the box, I think. So here's your chance, and I'm, I am amused by the fact that I'm an engineer by trade. Most of what you've said that you do is, cannot fit on one business card, sure. but um, we'll come back to that. So as a listener, um, we've talked a lot about what you're doing as an oncologist, but here's your chance to tell listeners on how they will never actually have to see you ever as far as what they should be doing in their life and you know things that they should not be doing ever. 
Excellent uh, question. So, you know, our, our founder um, of Cancer Treatment Centers of America is, is a believer that one day in the ideal world will become Cancer Prevention Centers of America. So, um, you know, the goal is to really el eliminate cancer um, before it ever even occurs. And so um, right now, the things we know um, you know, or th they haven't changed a lot, and, and that's basically preventive health. So make sure you're eating healthy, make sure that you're uh, exercising regularly, and that you try to kick any bad habits, so smoking, drinking, uh, alcohol, things like that. Um, now, we have the benefit of access to naturopathic providers and dietitians for all of our patients. So, you know, if I treat someone and I cure their cancer, the number one killer of, uh, of patients in America today still remains heart disease. So, you know, I want to be sure that they're still connecting with their primary care provider, getting screened for their cholesterol, for example. I want to make sure that they're uh, doing, taking the right vitamins that they need to, uh, you know, to make sure that they're uh, supplementing their diet appropriately, that they're eating a healthy, well-balanced diet. Um, you know, so, so whether you're a cancer survivor or you've never had cancer, I think those things are equally as important, that you want to live a healthy lifestyle. Um, the second part is screening, and that applies, again, to both the cancer survivor as well as the uh, person who's never had cancer, is be aware of those screening guidelines. So this is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and so we know mammograms save lives. Um, and the other thing that we're learning is that younger women also can get breast cancer. And so even though, and, and there is some conflict, you know, the, the American Cancer Society says screen at 40. The U U.S. Preventative Task Force says screen at 50. Um, I think the bottom line is, is understand your risk, your right. family history. So, you know, I think the important part about Breast Cancer Awareness Month is to be aware that, that, that you need to know your family history. You need to make sure you know when to get screened. So screening. And, and living a healthy lifestyle are still key factors to, to hopefully never seeing me. We're coming up on Thanksgiving, and I know one of the things that's been recommended over time is to try to use that if the family is getting together to actually at least have some measure of conversation about health issues if, to mm -hmm. find so that you can have an idea. Is, is someone in my nearby family uh, dealing with an issue that I, that I can benefit from knowing about for my own prevention or screening. Yeah, it's, it, it amazes me, you know, as part of taking a person's history when they first see me, family history is a part of that. And, and it does amaze me how many of us don't really know our family history very well. And I'll admit, I mean, I'm guilty of that too, um, because it's just not a routine thing that comes up, you know, in your conversation around the table. But it probably should be. Um, over time, you know, getting that information to understand what the risks are in your family. You know, I do know my family has a higher incidence of diabetes and high blood pressure and heart disease. So, you know, I'm very particular about paying attention to that. But um, you need to know that in addition to, you know, what's the cancer risk in your family. Mm -hmm. Any final thoughts before we have to let you get back to the office? Um, I, I think, you know, my final words, I, you know, I think we're seeing huge successes in, in oncology today that, that are the result of um, the existing collaborations that occur uh, of genomic precision medicine as well as uh, big data. Um, you know, I think that we're going to continue to see ever-evolving growth in that field. Um, what I hope for is that uh, we will all as institutions uh, start to work together so we can see this uh, accelerate to cures in, in a lot faster manner.
If you want more information about Cancer Treatment Centers of America, you can go to CancerCenter.com to get more information about their, their location here around the Atlanta area in particular. Do CancerCenter.com slash Southeastern. They're also on Twitter and Facebook at Cancer Center. And, of course, uh, if you haven't done so already, you can jump over to ShareWick.com. There are partners in the show. We really appreciate having them ar- ar- around to help us make this show possible. And also get over to HealthConnects south.com and and learn more about how they're trying to break down the silos that we talked about here earlier in the show but uh dr brian randolph i really appreciate you making some time coming up from noonan to join us in the studio this morning it's been great talking to you thank you it's been a pleasure and uh, to the rest of the folks at cancer treatment centers of america we want to say thanks for for sharing him with us this morning and uh diana thanks for being a part of it again today it as always. It was a pleasure i wish um as i was working for um the metro newspaper as a healthcare journalist I had more doctors like like you that actually do such a great job of breaking it down and, and are so articulate on a level where most people can understand. So, Thank you. If you're checking out the podcast for today's show and you've not done so already, you'll see the Apple logo in the upper left-hand corner of the show's page. Follow that to, to take you over to the iTunes store, to the Health Connect South Radio Show podcast. Subscribe to us so every week you get the new episode downloaded straight to your device. You can check it out on your way to work or walking the dog, whatever the case may be. We hope you do that, and we hope you turn around and share this with your social media connections because you may just put some information in their hands that would either be the resource that would help collaborate with folks like Dr. Randolph and his team, uh, or perhaps maybe give them some information that would lead to uh, a good, positive health outcome for them as well. So we hope you do that. Uh, Everybody in the studio, we really appreciate you. And uh, folks out there who made us a part of your day, we really want to say thank you so much. And we'll see you all same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. This show is brought to you by Sherwick Media. Sherwick is the health and wellness solution, content that inspires change. Learn more at www.sherwick.com. That's sharewik.com. And link up with us on Facebook and Twitter.